something is to teach it. It's the best way to do it. And listen, you may say, well, I don't really know that much. I guarantee you know somebody who doesn't know Jesus, right? So there's always somebody who knows, like if you've been a Christian for two seconds, you know the Bible better than somebody who has never been a Christian at all. If you've been a believer for 10 years, you know better than a new believer. See, everyone has the ability to make an investment in somebody else. And that's what God calls all of us to. You don't have to be a pastor to teach others about the gospel. In today's message, Pastor Daniel reminds all of us that we need to share the word with everyone. We'll learn right along with them as we study and teach, and we'll draw closer to God in the process. Don't worry about not knowing all the material or having the exact words to say. If you begin by seeking God, He'll reveal His truth and blessings to you and those you disciple. Now here's Pastor Daniel in Deuteronomy chapter 33 with part two of his message, Final Blessings. verses 8 to 11, we get the blessing of the tribe of Levi. It says, and of Levi, he said, let the Thummim and your Urim be with your Holy One, whom you tested at Massah and with whom you contended at the waters of Mirabah, who says to his father and his mother, I have not seen them, nor did he acknowledge his brothers or know his own children, for they have observed your word and kept your covenant. They shall teach Jacob your judgments and Israel your law. They shall put incense before you and a whole burnt sacrifice on your altar. Bless his substance, Lord, and accept the work of his hands. Strike the loins of those who rise against him and of those who hate him that they rise not again. Now, you have to remember that the tribe of Levi, they were given the gift through God's work at Sinai to be the priestly tribe. So their work dealt with that mobile tabernacle, which ended up giving way to the temple at the time of King Solomon. And so their job was actually to do all the work so that the people could worship. And so the Urim and the Thummim, they were most likely, and I say most likely because Nobody really knows what they are, and no one's actually ever seen them, but they were these two stones, precious stones, that were almost used in a way of kind of casting lots to discern the voice and the purposes of God. And it was in the breastplate of the high priest. He had these two stones. Now, how they worked, I've read about a 100 different conjectures on how these things worked. So I'm not going to tell you any of them over how it worked because I don't want to give you bad advice. I feel like as a teacher, my job is actually to tell you when something makes a lot of sense, I say, this is what it is. And when nobody knows what it means, I say, well, people say all these different things, but I don't really know what it does. I've heard people say that when they ask a question, one would light up, all sorts of, and that's one of them. And so I heard a teacher be like, and they would ask and it would all light up. I'm like, well, not really. We don't know what they exactly did. But they were there and they were part of the vestments of the high priest. And so I love this. Let your thummim and your umim be with your holy one whom you tested at Massah and with whom you contended 
at the waters of Mirabah. Now, if you remember, what went on was this contention where the tribe of Levi was faithful to stand with Moses and Levi, who were, of course, Levites, right? And so, or Moses and Aaron, his brother. And so there was this rebellion that happened and the Levites stood with Moses and Aaron who were all of the tribe of Levi. And so it's just a reminder that they were faithful when people challenged the authority of Moses and Aaron and they were faithful to their calling. And I think that's very, very important that we learn how to be faithful to our calling. Like we live in a day and age where nobody knows how to be content where they are. And so for the Levites, they were given a very specific task and they were faithful to it. And I think what's important is, is because a lot of times we, people struggle with the idea of being content because it's like, well, does God want me to be lazy? Does he want me to be passionless? But the idea of being content is saying, God, with the step you have me on, I'm going to be infinitely faithful right there. As I'm faithful in this, I know that if I'm faithful here, you'll give me the next thing because you can trust that I'm going to be faithful. So we don't be faithful so that we get the next thing. We be faithful because God is faithful. And as we become like the Lord, we become more faithful. And as we're faithful in what he gives us, then he gives us the next thing and the next thing and the next thing. So really, our only job is to learn how to be faithful with what's in front of us. Now, when I say that, the question becomes, are you being faithful with what's in front of you? Because oftentimes, we're so busy looking at what we're hoping is going to come next that we're not faithful on the step that we're on. And I kind of feel like I have a PhD in that, right? I can see in my heart, I'm always looking beyond what it is rather than saying, Lord, I'm going to be infinitely faithful with what you have in front of me right now. And I'm going to embrace what you have in front of me, whatever it is, and I'm going to be faithful to it because what God really wants is for us to learn how to be faithful because he's faithful. Isn't God faithful? Always faithful. Now, oftentimes we don't understand what God's up to and it makes us question his faithfulness, but God is always faithful and he wants us to learn faithfulness and the Levites were that. I mean, what a great gift of ministry that they receive. Notice in verse 10, they shall teach Jacob your judgments and Israel your law. They shall put incense before you and a whole burnt sacrifice on your altar. So the Levites get the beautiful gift of teaching the word, the idea of putting the incense before them. And this was obviously a substance that was being burned for fragrance. But when you get to the book of Revelation, you find that God sees our prayers as incense. It's powerful. So part of the ministry of the Levites was this ministry of prayer. And notice, who is the incense before? Is it before the people? No, it's before who? Before you, capital Y-O-U. So the Levites, their job was to minister as unto the Lord and then, and a whole burnt sacrifice on your altar. Now we know that Jesus is the sacrifice, but the apostle Paul tells us that we should present our bodies as what? as a living sacrifice. And so this is a beautiful picture of the priestly ministry, right? It's a ministry of the word. It's a ministry of prayer. And it's a ministry of being set apart or consecrated for the Lord. Now, before you start saying, well, Fusco, that's your job because you're one of the pastors here. I actually believe in what scholars and theologians call the priesthood of all believers. And the reason I believe that is because it's in First Peter chapter 2. That God has made us a kingdom of priests, which means all of us are called to the ministry of the word, ministry of prayer, and to be set apart because Jesus is the sacrifice. All of us are called to it. And so, brothers, sisters, be 
passionate about the word. Teach the word. I always tell people that the best way to learn something is to teach it. It's the best way to do it. And listen, you may say, well, I don't really know that much. I guarantee you know somebody who doesn't know Jesus, right? So there's always somebody who knows, like if you've been a Christian for two seconds, you know the Bible better than somebody who has never been a Christian at all. If you've been a believer for 10 years, you know better than a new believer. See, everyone has the ability to make an investment in somebody else. And that's what God calls all of us to. So be passionate about the word. Be someone who allows, put your incense before the Lord. I think that there's no stranger experience than learning how to pray. Do you know what I've learned about learning how to pray? I'm always learning how to pray. It's like you're always trying to figure out, like, how does this prayer thing work? And there's a a time when you're praying a certain way and you feel like you're having that dialogue with God. And then that same thing, a little bit later, you're like, this isn't working at all. I don't feel like I'm having any connection with the Lord. And then you try something else. And what I've learned is that's exactly the way God likes it. Because if you find one way that works, you actually never have to grow. You never have to seek. You get stuck in a rut. And I imagine that there's some of you even right now, you're like, I'm totally stuck in a prayer rut right now. And I think what happens when you get stuck in a rut is you either pray mindlessly with no dialogue or you just stop praying. But I think what God loves is that prayer is a process of discovery. It's like any relationship. As a relationship deepens, it's a process of discovery that happens where you're learning and pursuing. And then, of course, being set apart for worship. And I love this kind of prayer. Bless his substance, Lord, and accept the work of his hands. I love that. He's saying, Lord, even though the offering may be insufficient, accept the work of his hands. And then... You don't often think about this, strike the loins of those who rise up against them. He's like, if anyone messes with them, then beat them down, Lord. That's what he's saying. Protect them. Now, in verse 12, we get the blessing to the tribe of Benjamin. Of Benjamin, he said, the beloved of the Lord shall dwell in safety by him who shelters him all the day long, and he shall dwell between his shoulders. What a beautiful picture this is. Benjamin is one who's loved by God. Should dwell in safety by him, close to God's presence. Of course, when I read that, I immediately thought of beautiful Psalm 23, right? How the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He leads me beside still waters. He lays me down in green pastures. My cup overflows. This picture of the benefits of being in the presence of God This idea of that he shall dwell between his shoulders. What's between your shoulders? There's one vital organ. There's the lungs and there's the what? The heart. Yeah, you get it, right? It's a Hebrew way of saying, be in his heart. And God wants us to be in those places that we dwell safely and close to him. God wants to be our shelter. Now, verses 13 and 17, of course, we get, the blessing for Joseph. And of course, if you remember that Joseph, he had two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, when he was in Egypt. And Jacob actually adopted Ephraim and Manasseh. So if you ever look at any of the lists of the 12 tribes, anytime you get these blessings, sometimes Levi doesn't get something and Ephraim and Manasseh gets it. Sometimes Ephraim and Manasseh get it and someone else doesn't get it. And so it's a really fascinating reality. For those of you who like kind of 
to geek out on your Bible. I'm kind of Bible nerd in my own fun way. And so what you realize is that in a lot of ways, although there's 12 tribes, there's really 13. And what's really fascinating is that the same thing goes on in the New Testament because Jesus chooses 12 disciples. Obviously, Judas commits suicide, is no longer there. And then they bring on Matthias and then the apostle Paul shows up. So people argue like, well, was Matthias really? Was Paul really? It's a both. It's 13, just like the 12 tribes. But then there's 13 because Jacob adopts Ephraim and Manasseh. And so if you want to have fun with that, you can geek out on all that stuff. And so if you don't know what I'm talking about, don't worry about it. Just keep tracking and we'll keep going. But of course you have Joseph, verse 13. It says, and of Joseph, he said, blessed of the Lord is his land with the precious things of heaven, with the dew and with the deep lying beneath, with the precious fruits of the sun, with the precious produce of the months, with the best things of the ancient mountains, with a the precious things of the everlasting hills, with the precious things of the earth and its fullness, and the favor of him who dwelt in the bush. Let the blessing come on the head of Joseph and on the crown of his head, of him who was separate from his brothers. His glory is like a firstborn bull and his horns like the horns of a wild ox. Together with them, he shall push the peoples to the ends of the earth. They are the ten thousands of Ephraim and they are the thousands of Manasseh. Now, you notice how it says, blessed of the Lord is his land, right? And then you notice a reoccurring phrase. It's that word precious. Over and over again, the precious things of heaven, the precious fruit of the sun, the precious produce of the month, the best things of the ancient mountains, the precious things of the ever, the precious things of the earth. See, this speaks of God's abundant blessings in the life of Joseph and in the life of you and me. See, God wants to bestow on us the best of things. And we've already talked about this a little bit as we see the blessings of God. But he wants us to enjoy the things in front of us. To see the things as God's bountiful blessings in our lives. Let blessings come on the head of Joseph and on the crown of his head of him who was separate from his brothers. Now, if you remember when we studied the book of Genesis together, or if you've studied on your own, that Joseph was the firstborn of Jacob's bride, Rachel, who he had, I always get Rachel and Rebecca screwed up in my head, but Rachel. So I said, Rachel, I'm like, Rebecca, Rachel. She was barren for so long, but then Joseph was born and Jacob had a preference for Joseph. Remember, he gave Joseph that multicolored jacket. And it created a lot of issues with his brothers, so much so that they really didn't like him. And then on top of it, Joseph started having all these dreams. And he was telling them, you're all going to bow down to me. And all these older brothers like, we're going to kill you. And they tried. They threw him in a pit. They decided they weren't going to kill him. They were going to sell him into slavery. And if you remember, God was in all of this to make sure Joseph ended up in Egypt so that he would be in the right place when the Pharaoh had a dream and he would interpret that dream and he would rise into power and God would use this unique wisdom that he'd given to Joseph that Joseph might not only save the people in Egypt but also his own family and many people. But Joseph was not one who went along with the crowd. He was different. And I think willing to be separate in a conformist culture is a lost art that I think the people of God 
need to find again. Because what goes on, I think, is that there's so much pressure to be like everybody else. And what happens is, is it happens in the world and then the church conforms to the world, which makes no sense. But then what happens is it also goes on in church too. Where what happens is in church, there's this like, this is what a Christian looks like. And normally it's not a biblical view. It's like, this is just how we think Christians are supposed to act. And so everyone becomes kind of like a cookie cutter. But really, if you read your Bible, especially the book of Ephesians, chapter 2, verse 10, it says that all of us are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works which God prepared beforehand that we would walk in. And what that means is God uses different people in different ways. You can always tell when somebody is being uniquely who Jesus made them to be because it will always create issues. Let me give you a great example of this biblically. The apostle Paul. The early church was predominantly Jewish because Jesus was Jewish and he was a fulfillment of the Jewish scriptures. But God gave the apostle Paul a vision to see the Gentiles come to know the Messiah. And right away, all these issues start. I mean, the early church had the Jerusalem council because the apostle Paul was going out and all these Gentiles were getting saved. Like, What do we do with the Gentiles? And then all of a sudden, well, if they're going to be really Christian, they need to become circumcised. They need to eat kosher and all these things. And all of a sudden, the fights began because now all of a sudden, God is doing a work outside of what was the proper conformity that was supposed to be. But what you find if you read church history as well is that, and I'm not talking about just being individualistic for individualistic sake. I need to nuance that, don't I? Because really easy, I was like, well, I'm going to be unique and I'm going to do whatever I want. No, no, it's in Christ. The uniqueness is in Christ. But all through church history, every church movement began with somebody who was willing to go against acceptable conformity in the pursuit of Jesus every time. And now all of a sudden, everyone gets excited about it later, but in the beginning, they try and suppress it. And it happens all the time, whether you're talking about Augustine, whether you're talking about the first set of mystics who went out into the desert because the Christian church had become a social gathering for the Roman Empire, whether it's someone like Francis of Assisi who began to move amongst the poorest of the poor to see the gospel run forth, whether it's the Reformation. And there was not only, we know Martin Luther with his theses, but, you know, whether it's in Switzerland, in Geneva, all these, in all these different, in Germany, there was Reformation going on in every European country when they were getting back to the Bible. And even to the point, like when I look at Crossroads, our history is Calvary Chapel. And when all of a sudden it was contemporary Christian music and verse by verse Bible teaching, people were freaking out. And they're like, that Calvary Chapel thing's all messed up. I mean, they have Doritos and Pepsi for communion. I mean, this is not okay. Because it was different. And now every church has got contemporary worship. And, you know, and it's like, but at that time, everyone was mad about it. And so the key to make sure is that we want to be uniquely who God has made us to be. You know, and that's one of the things I love about the body of Christ is that every church is different. Different churches have different things that they're getting at. And as long as we can agree on who Jesus is, I think that we should be okay with it. Like I meet people all the time and they're like, well, crossroads this. I'm like, look, I'm not saying we do it the best way. We just do what we feel like we're supposed to do. And we're not going to worry about, like, we can't do everything. No one can do everything. You can only do, this is what we're supposed to do. And we love getting at what God is asking us to get at. And I have no problems to get, there's a million other things we can do, but this is what we're called to do. And if we focus on what we're called to do, and all of God's people focus on what they're called to do, guess what? All the work of God's kingdom gets done. 
But what happens is when everyone says, well, I do it this way, now you have to do it this way, now all of a sudden a whole bunch of things don't get done because people are conforming over. So we want to be separate. We want to allow the Lord to do what he wants to do. And Joseph was a great example of that. Now, what's also interesting here is that we also learn by the time we get to the end of verse 17, they are the 10,000s of Ephraim and the thousands of Manasseh. Now, although Manasseh was really the firstborn son, Ephraim took the preeminence, grew. If you get into the prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah, when they talk about the 10 northern tribes, they call it Ephraim oftentimes because it was the largest of the northern tribes. And so it is interesting that all the way back in the book of Deuteronomy, there is that distinction of you're seeing that Ephraim is going to have numerically more people than his older brother Manasseh. Now, Zebulun and ultimately Issachar mixed in here, verses 18 and 19, it says, and of Zebulun, he said, rejoice Zebulun in your going out and Issachar in your tents. They shall call the peoples to the mountains. There they shall offer sacrifices of righteousness for they shall partake of the abundance of the seas and of the treasures hidden in the sand. So the idea for Zebulun and Issachar is to rejoice in your going out. Now, no, I want you to do, I want you to take your pen, I want you to reach over and I want you to circle that in your neighbor's Bible. Go ahead, just, just circle that. Rejoice in your going out. So listen, the encouragement for me in this blessing is everywhere you go, go with joy. Find a reason to rejoice as you go. Because when you are willing to be joyful in a world that isn't joyful, you stick out like a sore thumb, which is exactly what we want. See, we want to be people who are known for our joy. Why? Because as Nehemiah 8.10 says, the joy of the Lord is what? Is your strength. God is the most joyful person you'll ever meet. The cross was all about the joy that was set before Jesus. That because of the joy that was set before me, endured the cross, despising the shame, he seat down at the right hand of the Father. So we want to be people who rejoice. And you don't need pleasant circumstances to rejoice. Because in the end of the day, as it says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 16, rejoice always. Rejoice always. Why? Because all things are working together good for those who love God, for those who are the called according to his purpose. And we can rejoice, even if we don't understand it, we can still say, Lord, I don't get it, but I praise you. And of course, Job said it. I think it was Matt Redman who wrote it into a very famous now Christian song. You give and you take away. But either way, I'm going to say blessed be your name. Jesus is real. It's hard to rejoice when the world is falling apart. However, Pastor Daniel reminded us today that many scripture passages refer to rejoicing in all circumstances. By ourselves, there's no way we'd be able to accomplish this. Through drawing close to God in His Word, spending time with the encouragement of other followers of Christ, and communicating with God Himself, we will be able to change that and find joy. Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram have become a regular part of our everyday lives. And we want to be sure to encourage you to check out Pastor Daniel's Facebook page, Twitter feed, and Instagram. Log on to JesusIsRealRadio.com and follow the links. Pastor Daniel shares two-minute video messages throughout the week on his Facebook page. 
Log on to JesusIsRealRadio.com and follow Pastor Daniel. God has been doing some amazing things at Crossroads. One of the things that I'm the most stoked about is our new campuses. We launched a brand new campus in Southwest Portland. So if you're in the area, I'd love to invite you to come and join us for worship Sundays at 10 a.m. Our online campus is reaching the entire world. And we'd love to have you join us on Sundays at 9, 11, or 1 p.m. or Wednesdays at 7 p.m. at CrossroadsLive.tv. Now here's Josh with what's coming up on our next episode of Jesus is Real Radio. Place a marker in your Bibles and join us next time as Pastor Daniel winds down Moses' individual blessings over the tribes of Israel. In this passage, we'll also learn about how important ministry is and how anyone and everyone can be involved. Even the smallest tasks in life can be done for the glory of God and the advancement of the kingdom. There's much more to learn when you join us again on Jesus is Real Radio. Well, that's all the time we have for today's broadcast. On behalf of Pastor Daniel and the entire production team, we invite you to join us again for the next edition of Jesus is Real Radio.